have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah as we uh, look to our last chapter in this uh, series through the book of Nehemiah. It's been a, uh, a fantastic time uh, as we have read and considered God's Word and the work that He has done um, in the people of Israel in, in the book of Nehemiah, but also I hope that it's been... Uh, a bit of a parallel to some things that he has done in your life as well as we have studied through this Old Testament book. Uh, Twelve years, Nehemiah served as governor for 12 years. He served the people of Israel there in, there in Jerusalem uh, under the authority and direction of the king Artaxerxes of Babylon. He served 12 years. And in that time frame of 12 years, there were many great things accomplished. Nehemiah brings with him a third wave of exiles who returned to the city. Um, The first wave being led by Zerubbabel, which is a fantastic name. And the second one being led by Ezra, whose book immediately precedes Nehemiah's. And then Nehemiah leads a third wave. We see that construction of the wall, the the final security piece of the city, is reconstructed and rebuilt in record time, just 52 days. I'd love to see them come train some county workers around here who couldn't get anything accomplished In any amount of time, we see that the people unified, and they come together. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 is a beautiful picture of an entire community from different places and backgrounds and walks of life and, and, and families. We don't just see the adults, we see the children get involved as well, and you see this, this unifying coming together of the people there. We see that tasks and jobs that are established for the Levites and the priests are are reaffirmed and created in the temple, that temple worship might work and be structured in a particular way to honor and bless the Lord. We see a spiritual renewal and reformation happen amongst the people of Israel as they read God's word, as they hunger and desire for God's word to be read and they respond to it in a big way, and, and the way that uh, the, their hearts are broken over their sin, and they have sort of a national confession of their sin, but then they have a repentance that comes as well. And you remember we, we considered this in chapter 8, the, the immediacy of their response to God's word and what they have found in it. There's a celebration of Feasts and festivals, traditions long forgotten from the people. And, and these were not just an excuse to throw a big party, but these were done in a way that would honor and remember what the Lord has done, and they would worship Him for His blessing on them as a nation. We considered last week the citywide celebration and dedication to the wall being complete as they look back on all that God has done for them. Twelve years. 
12 years of faithfulness, 12 years of unrelenting pursuit of God, 12 years of naysayers and opposition, public smearing and harsh things being said, 12 years of threats of violence being spoken against them, hard, tumultuous, sweaty Work, blood, sweat, and tears being poured in. Sacrifices made on individual levels of the people for the good of the community. But they've seen victory and triumph as God has been faithful to sustain them time and time and time again. It should encourage us as we read the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah, and we see how the story unfolds, it should encourage us to consider this book and and see that things that take spiritual significance take time, that God works in his own way. He does not operate on our schedule. I think we've, we've sort of ruined ourselves as as a generation of people, we've become the microwave generation where we want sort of that, that two-minute instant gratification, right? And when we don't get that, we get frustrated and, and, and out of sorts, and we ask, God, why are you not doing this in the time frame that it could be done? I mean, why would you take so long? I have this wrestle myself. There are times where I get so excited and so encouraged and so enthusiastic about, about things, and, and, and especially in, in terms of church work. I, I, this is the most energized I have been in my entire lifetime of serving in ministry these last 11 months. But there have been times, I confess, where that, that energy and that excitement and that, that um, uh, 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 passion that I have for uh, building his church and serving you all um, ha- has been so prominent. I'll accidentally take the reins out of the Lord's hands. Because, see, I'll, I'll think, hey, I get just a little small glimpse. God, I, I see what you're doing. Let me take over for a while. And it's, it's not a bad thing. It's with the best of intentions. But ultimately, I set the Lord aside and say, God, you've laid the field. I know what you're doing. I'll take over for now. And then when things don't land the way I want them to, or they don't go the way I expect them to, or I have a setback and I feel disappointment, maybe you all have had that as well. I confess, I sort of go to the Lord and say, God, what's the deal? I mean, like, keep up, God. Look at all the wonderful things that you've done. Why are you not keeping up? Why is the plan change like why stop now god this is not how i prayed for that to go this is not what you and i discussed when we were laying these plans if it would have happened differently imagine the results that would have been i slip back into this this old bad mentality and habit of not letting the Lord lead as he is to lead, and I follow him. We're going to see that some this morning as we finish out Nehemiah 13. 
that as we close this book, we're going to see some further reforms that Nehemiah makes in the people because they have slipped up a little bit. They've fallen back into some old habits. It's the title of the sermon this morning you see on your outline, uh, Old Habits Die Hard. Old Habits Die Hard. Science will tell us that it takes at least a minimum of 21 days to make something a habit. It takes seven for it to be not to be a habit. You have to commit to something for a long time for it to be a habit. You have to commit less for it not to be a habit. So we're going to see here in Nehemiah 13 as we end the state of things with the people of Israel. We're going to Take it in little chunks. Verse 1 through 9. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, and, the king, and came to Jerusalem, and I, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Before we go any further, will you pray with me? God, I thank you for this time when we can study your word. I pray that it would be helpful to us, Father, as we consider some last um, uh, acts of reform and, and last acts of of sin habit breaking that that we see in the people of Israel here. God, may we be convicted of our own sin. May we be convicted of our own struggles and our own failures. God, I just ask that you would do a mighty work in us. We thank you for your word and the way you speak to us. May it be helpful. God, I pray that you would speak through me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First thing I want us to see as we look at Nehemiah 13 is a dangerous relationship. A dangerous relationship. There's, there's a dedication ceremony that's just taken place in chapter 12. And, and all the people have been gathered together and they, they sort of end that, that procession. You remember of the two choirs. They, they all are leading to the temple. Everyone is to gather at the temple where they go, they're going to have this massive worship service 
uh, remembering and declaring what God had done. And so at this point now, everybody is still at the temple, or everybody is gathered to the temple, rather. And so the law is being read. Anytime God's people are gathered together to worship and celebrate who God is, it makes an awful deal of good, of good sense to have the, the law of God read or the word of God read. And so they're gathered together. And what it says here is that they hear from the book of Moses. And in hearing, the people find it written, verse 1, that there was no Ammonite or Moabite should be entered ever in the assembly of God. And so here's what God's word says. They, they receive it, they hear it, they say, oh, we recognize that his word says something, and you see what they do in verse 2. I'm sorry, in verse 3. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, they've done this one time before. But obviously, something had happened that they've, they've sort of begun to mingle with each other again. And they realize, in hearing God's word, that it's not proper, that they are to be separated. And especially separated when they are in assembly with one another, in temple, worshiping God. But here, just like in, similar to chapter 8, they hear Scripture read, they rediscover a practice that had not been done, and they are obedient to do what it says. It's funny how Scripture has a way of doing that in our lives, how we will read something and sort of rediscover what it says. Not that we didn't know it before, but we forget. We backslide. Old habits die hard. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active. His word doesn't change and his word doesn't grow stale either. It is living and active. You can read the same passage day after day after day and there will be something new, something new for you to bring from it. God speaks to us through his word. It's one of the many reasons why we have a Bible reading plan as a church. It's not simply because we, we want to all be on the same page together and, and all read our Bibles together and, and talk about it. That's a benefit of it. But the, the reason we do an annual Bible reading plan and we read through Scripture year after year after year is because it is living and active. God's word will speak to us. We simply have to actually read it. God's word will, will give us the, the words of life. But we have to be diligent to read it. And, and not just read it out of some sense of duty or obligation. It's not a, another box on a list of, of things to check off that make you a good Christian. We read it because we long to commune with God and we expectantly anticipate that he will speak through his word while we read. When you speak to your spouse or loved one or friend, do they say the same things to you over and over and over again? Maybe sometimes. 
We all have that friend. But for the most part, a, a relationship, as you seek to build relationship with someone, there are new things that are said all along. We seek a relationship with the Lord, and he communicates with, uh, to us with his word. Are we diligent to read it? But notice here also the immediacy of their action. It says, as soon as they heard the law, they separated They're quick to obey God's word. They don't hesitate. They don't question. They don't try to give some sort of loose interpretation that might further justify their sin. There's there's an attack on the authority of God's word today. There's an attack on the authority, and not just authority, on the clarity of God's word today. See, intellectual understanding, knowing what it says, means nothing if there's no actual obedience. You can sit here and listen to me week after week, come Wednesday nights or Sunday nights, week after week, absorb and interpret and and understand the language and have all of this, this wonderful hermeneutic of how God's word is orchestrated and written, but if we're not actually doing anything with it, It means nothing. In fact, it might even be a greater offense to know exactly what God's word says and understand it with profound insight, yet willfully disobey it. We're to hear and act in full obedience, trusting God along the way, because it is he who has said it. It's God who has spoken to us. I wonder if there's any part of his word this morning that you need to be better about obeying. I wonder if there's any part of God's word this morning that that upon hearing the teaching and the instruction and the commands of his word is your first inclination to obey because he has said so, or is it to question or ignore Or seek some sort of other interpretation that might justify you not doing it. They acted in obedience, but it posed posed a problem. Tobiah, we've seen his name before, is an Ammonite. He is the very person who is not supposed to be in the assembly of the people. And not only is he in the assembly of the people but he's actually taken up a bit of residence in the temple itself Tobiah the Ammonite who is one of the opposers from earlier in the book and one of the nobles in the community is one of the the sort of social elites he carries with him a lot of influence and a lot of of uh, clout amongst the people he's taking up space in the temple there's this priest whose name is Eliashib, and Eliashib holds a position of authority and oversight in the temple as a priest, and his particular authority, they would have had different jobs, different roles. Eliashib's role was overseeing the storerooms where the tithes would have been brought and stored. Eliashib is on staff there. He's one of their pastors. 
and he has a particular role in the temple. But Eliashib has a buddy named Tobiah. And Tobiah is looking for some office space. And it seems reasonable. We have the space available. We can just rearrange some things and re. Re, uh, and move some things around, reappropriate some things, and we can make space for Tobiah. I mean, after all, he's an old friend. The word that the, the Hebrew uses when it says that he's related to Tobiah is, the word, is, is a word that means uh, near or closely associated with. In fact, there's even some some um, unclear um, teaching on whether this Eliashib is the high priest Eliashib that we find at the end of the chapter, if it's simply just another, a different guy. We, we don't know. Uh, if it is the, the high priest, it makes it sort of double offensive. But either way, we have a, a person in a holy position befriending and, and, and associating with a person he's not supposed to associate with according to the law. And not only is he not, not supposed to associate with them, but he's actually misappropriating God's resources that he would give space to this enemy of the people. Tobiah was no friend to Israel. He was certainly not a friend to Nehemiah. He tried to stop the building of the wall. He tried to get Nehemiah in trouble. He sent letters to the king, smearing and slandering. He mocked and jeered at all that God was doing amongst the people. You remember, Tobiah is the one who claimed that the wall wasn't even going to hold a fox's weight. He is an enemy of the people. And here he is befriended and taken up residence in the temple court. That's The temple court is, is sort of an inner part of the way that the temple was built. You had sort of an outer section and an inner section. So this means that Tobiah is in a place of great influence. As people come in and out, as he interacts with the priests and the Levites day after day after day, he is of great influence in a place he's not supposed to be in amongst the people that he could care less about. Can you imagine the havoc and disaster that would come from a relationship like that? Can you imagine the poison and the lies that would be spread amongst God's people by this man as he takes up office space, residence space inside the temple and yet doesn't believe, doesn't worship, doesn't follow after the God that everyone else is there to worship. He's simply there because this priest has given him space. Elisha is clearly violating God's law. He's showing poor, poor stewardship over the tithes that people have brought. And he has very little concern over the holiness of the place 
or even the importance of his job. The application here, friends, is to be careful with whom you associate with. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Paul writes that bad company corrupts good character. We oftentimes try to um, justify our associations and our friends thinking, well, maybe I could just be a good influence on them. Most of the time, what will happen is they will actually begin to influence us. And we become corrupt in our character. This priest, Eliashib, has let a serpent into the temple, but he's also made a dwelling place for him. That's against God's law. And so Nehemiah acts. He hears of this evil. He's been away after his 12 years. He has to return to the king. He comes back to Jerusalem at some point. He hears of what's gone on, and he acts in a holy Anger, verse 8, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Can you just picture the scene as Nehemiah hears of what's going on and he, he responds by going and getting a U-Haul truck. And he comes back and without a, a word being said, marches himself into the temple and begins to grab up all of the furniture out of Tobiah's office and he just throws it out sort of reminds me of another person who entered a temple with a righteous anger, began to throw some things out. When we begin to misappropriate a place of worship, when we begin to abuse a place of gathering, when we begin to steward poorly and wrongly the resources that God has blessed his people with, it leads us to sin. The laxivity of Eliashib here leads to sin, and Nehemiah won't have it. He's going to toss it out. The second thing we see, though, is not just relationships, but we see, number two, neglected commitments. Look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Metaniah, for they were considerable, they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to, the, to their brothers. And remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. There are neglected commitments happening amongst the people. Do you remember what they covenanted themselves to back in chapter 10? Now back in chapter 10, if you read, I'll give you the, the verses. It's chapter 10, verse 32 through 39. You will read there that the people have commit themselves. They, they self-inflict a covenant on themselves 
taken in the Lord's name, by the way, you remember the language they use, we uh, enact a blessing and a, uh, I'm sorry, a curse and an oath on ourselves, right? And the, the specifics of that covenant were that they were going to provide what is necessary to the temple for the priests and the Levites and the singers and those who did the work of maintaining the temple. Because it takes work. There's cleaning that needs to be done. There's administration that needs to happen. There are things that must be done in order for the temple to function. And they realize this, and they say, we're going to provide what is necessary for the temple to continue to function. And here, at some point in the future, they are not providing for it. Time has passed from Nehemiah 10 until Nehemiah 13 now, and it seems as though they were not actually providing the tithes and offerings that they had pledged themselves to. They were not giving in according to the covenant that they had bound themselves to. Not only were they not providing as they should have, but apparently they're providing nothing at all because the Levites are having to actually leave the temple grounds to go out into their fields and seek supplemental income somewhere else. They're having to leave and go somewhere else because it is just not being provided the way it was supposed to. This leaving, this departing from the temple to go work somewhere else so that they can provide for themselves and their families, this would have hurt the community as a whole because now the focus of the temple leaders, the focus of the Levites, what they are giving their time and their energies and their their mental bandwidth to, that is going somewhere else and it is not focused on the worship and the practice of the temple. And so you would be you would expect to see disorganization, dirtiness, um, uh, things not in their proper place, degrading of the facilities. You say, why? people aren't giving the way they're supposed to and so those that are doing the work to take care of it have to go somewhere else and and you see a pattern develop here right away that laxity in one area of life the the relationship with tobiah that sort of of laxity and and that sort of of disconcern with that relationship has now led to a decline and a stagnation of another they were They were lax in their relationship with the Ammonite. And that little area of sin has now trickled into another part of life where they stopped giving the way that they're supposed to. And Nehemiah calls them out on it. He pulls no punches. You remember how they ended their covenant in chapter 10, how they ended what they said. Chapter 10. Verse 39, after they they give sort of the list of contributions and tithes and offerings they're going to do, they sort of seal the covenant by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. How does Nehemiah confront them face to face, kind of in a bold, in your face sort of way? He goes, why have you forsaken the house of God? 
Right? He calls them out on their own on their own covenant, their own language. Why is the house of God forsaken? He says in chapter in verse eleven. They've broken their covenant. They've not held up what they said they were going to do. And the temple suffers for it. The people suffer for it. Money is always such an easy topic to talk about in churches. For whatever reason, our money our control over our finances, our stuff is off limits when it comes to spiritual matters. I mean, so often as people, we are willing to be confronted with anything else in life. But don't talk about my money. Don't talk about my stewardship. Don't talk about giving. We don't want to hear about it. I just want to say this. God's word makes it crystal clear that people are to give to the support and operation of the ministry of the church and those who lead it. And we're not even going to get into the discussion or the debate of of the 10% tithe or the freely give of 1 Corinthians. We're not going to argue which one, of it, which one of those that we're supposed to do. It's very clear that as people of God, we are to give to the support and operation of the ministry of the church and the people that lead it. And I praise God for the way I do. I praise God for the way that you have provided for me and my family and for the things that happen here. But here's what I want to encourage you with and challenge you with. That oftentimes, some people will give such a small token amount when they could easily give more and still be reasonably comfortable in life. Or, some people just don't give at all for whatever reason. And there's little conviction when it comes to the supporting and the resourcing of the church. They, they sort of pass the buck. Well, that's a terrible, terrible. Uh, they, they don't pass the buck. Um, they, they, they don't give the way they're supposed to, and there's no conviction about it. Here's what I would challenge you with. If tithing isn't something you do, can I lovingly Gently, but strongly, tell you to start. And it's not because I'm asking for more money. I am not asking for more money. I'm telling you that God's word instructs it, and by not doing so, you're in sin because you're violating his word. Let me say that again just as clearly and bluntly as I can. If you are not tithing to the church that you have joined yourself to, you are sinning. Because you're violating his word. If you've lived life on the 10% rule for some time and it's gotten fairly easy, 10% is not all that big of a deal anymore to your 
budget. Increase it. If 10% is no big deal and you don't miss it, then increase it. Stretch yourself in faithfulness to giving back to the Lord and you watch and see how he'll be faithful to provide for you at every turn. I've lived it. And if you're giving all you possibly can, keep doing it with joy. Keep doing it with joy as unto the Lord. Keep being faithful to steward well what he's given you so that his kingdom may advance. Don't neglect what God's called us to. Don't neglect that part of faithfulness in your walk with the Lord that he's called us to. Because it doesn't just hurt an individual. It hurts the entire community. Your sin of not giving or sin of not giving the way you should hurts the entire community. Apparently, it's not just they're not giving, but they're also not stewarding very well. Resources are going amiss or being squandered and wasted. And so Nehemiah here appoints treasurers over the resources that they are to uh, act and distribute rightly. See, integrity is a very important part of stewardship and of how we manage our resources. And especially as a church, integrity is of high importance when it comes to the 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 finances and the the resources that we have we want to act in such a way that would honor and bless the lord and not squander or waste even a penny as my friend rusty couch in atlanta georgia loves to tell and remind his church that this is god's money this is not our money this is kingdom dollars this isn't yours and so we don't want to waste it Brenneman, a theologian, writing on this passage, he says this, that when the spiritual life of leaders diminish because of their sin or carelessness, God's provision for his work also decreases. If you're going to act in sin or wastefulness and squandering the resources that he's going to give you, he's going to provide less and less and less for you. And I think Brennan, Brenneman is right. God will not honor or bless when there is sin present. Why would he? He'll chastise. He'll prune. As we see even in Revelation at times, he'll snuff out completely. But he will not bless. He'll sustain, which is different. But he will not bless. I pray that our lives would be filled with obedience, joyful obedience to the blessings of God rather than sin of disobedience. Third thing we see is there is a violating of the Sabbath. Look at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city 
brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Another issue that arises where people are breaking their own covenant to God and to one another on top of the law of Moses that's already been given a long, long time ago. They're breaking, they're violating the Sabbath. Again, looking back at chapter 10, Nehemiah 10, verse 31. They proclaim this. They say, If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Like they've declared that they're not going to engage in any sort of commerce or any sort of transaction. They're not going to violate the Sabbath. They're going to preserve it and keep it holy as God commands. And that lasts for a little while. Until suddenly it doesn't. They fall back into their old ways of laboring and profiting on a day that is meant for rest. In Jeremiah 17, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to this issue. Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 19. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, that's in Jerusalem, by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives. That's life or death language. For the sake of your lives, do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction look what follows the 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 warning and the consequence that follows if you listen to me declares the lord and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the sabbath day but keep the sabbath day holy and do no work on it then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of david Riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the, she- from the Shephelah, from the hill country, and from the Negeb, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be 
quenched. There is a warning given to God's people on keeping the Sabbath day holy. Keeping the Lord's day holy. That if people continue to violate the Sabbath, that it would bring a certain destruction to them. And if you know the history, if you, if you sort of look through the, the chapters of the Bible, you see that's exactly what happens. That Jerusalem, time and time and time again, is overrun by foreign countries and they lose their, their influence and their foothold. Time and time again, God's people fall to a different uh, uh, nation. He promises very clearly that he will bring a fire that will not be quenched. He will bring destruction that will not end because of their refusal to keep the Sabbath holy. You know, I wonder if sometimes churches don't flourish the way that they could because of continual violation of the Lord's day. I wonder if churches don't flourish the way that they could because the people that make up that church have a sort of similar attitude. They show up occasionally, they check their box, and then they go about the rest of their day. Now, I kid you not, I have seen in other places people that show up pulling their boat behind them because the moment that church is over, they're hitting the water out at the beach. And I'm not saying boating's bad. I'm not even saying a little recreation on Sunday is bad. But if your mentality as you approach the Lord's day is not one of reverence, and rest, and seeking the Lord, if, if it's just another part of your calendar, a, a time slot to fill that early morning time, and then the rest of the day is for whatever else you have to do, if that's the way you approach the Lord's day, I think maybe you've missed the point of the Lord's day. We're to keep it holy. Seeking the Lord, finding rest in Him. And so Nehemiah offers a, a solution for it. He offers a solution for it. Look there in 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. We'll solve this. That's very, it's very, quite easy, really. People are trading and, and entering into commerce and, and business on the Sabbath. We'll just not open the doors, and then the people that trade can't come in. That's a, quite an easy fix. But he goes a little bit further. Verse, again, verse 19, I stationed some of my servants at the gate, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Verse 20, Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares were lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, 
I will lay hands on you. That's not a laying hands of prayer or blessing. That's a, we're going to throw hands if I see you here again. From that time on, they did not come to the Sabbath. I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah offers a solution to fix it. He simply removes it and cuts it off. We read similarly to what was done in chapter 7 in in setting up guards at the gates and when the gates would open and close during day and night. See, protecting the Sabbath, protecting the Lord's day in your life means doing things intentionally. It takes intentionality. It takes intentional action and choice that you just are not going to do certain things on that day because it is the Lord's day. And if, if you have a, a checklist of things to get done and they don't all get done, that's okay. Because it is the Lord's day. It might even mean having to cut ties with something. Literally cut it out. Because you want to preserve the holiness of the Lord's day. Nehemiah here sets up guards at the gate to keep watch and to chase away all who might come to violate the Lord's day. I wonder what guards in your life do you need to keep that they would protect the holiness of the Sabbath. Last thing we see here, verse 23. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. I confronted them and cursed them, beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin acute on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women even made, made even him to sin. Shall we listen to you and, all, and do all this great evil and act treacherously amongst our God by marrying foreign women? This is perhaps, at least for me, as I read through and study through this chapter this week, this is perhaps the saddest part of this entire chapter. It's the saddest part of this entire, in this entire chapter because, see, God's word was clear again, crystal clear, that they were not to marry outside the nation because the temptation to idol worship was too great. They are not to marry outside of the nation, lest they be led astray into other things, just as Solomon was. And their affections, their hearts, their 
worship would not be towards their God, but be somewhere else. I mean, the, the result of what happens here, verse 24, this is sad. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Because of their sin, their adulterous hearts, their marrying outside of the nation, they've lost their heritage. And not only have they lost their heritage, but they've lost the very essence of what God was building in his people. The, the Hebrew nation and the Hebrew language is, a, is an oratory language. They have written texts, but so often God's word and God's commands and, and, and all of those things were communicated verbally. And here an entire generation has lost that. Because they've given, their parents have given themselves over to sin. And it's led them away from the Lord. Not only did the people subject, subject themselves to a high likelihood of idol worship and departing from God. Not only is it sin and disobedience, but the result is their children grow up not knowing the culture or the language completely lost what do they speak they speak the language of paganism they speak a worldly language they speak a language that does not seek after god they speak a language that sounds just like the rest of the nations it's idol worship language and if this isn't a commentary on our world today i don't know what is Like, can, I just, can, I just, can I just be honest with you for a minute? I think somewhere, and I don't know what, I'm not going to point to a particular generation, but I think somewhere along the line, Christian families fell away from what God's word would say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's to be what we hold up. That's to be what we affirm. But somewhere along the way, Christian families stopped saying the world the lord our god the lord is one and they began to marry the worldly culture around it like youth of today millennials and gen zers and younger are statistically the most spiritually dark and lost generations ever in the history of mankind like we don't live in just a post Christian world anymore. We live in a post-post-Christian world where the things of God and the truths of the Bible aren't even known. Young people having no idea who Jesus is. Young people who can't even give a Sunday school elementary felt bored answer about basic stories of the Bible. They, they don't know the, the, the stock Sunday school answer of Jesus. 
right? That's, that's what we're taught, that, that Jesus is the answer for everything, right? And, and it's the Sunday school answer. They don't even know that. And who's responsible? Who's responsible for our children not knowing the language of the Lord? The parents. Vodi Bakum gives a fantastic quote in the book, in his book, Family Driven Faith. He says this. He says, we cannot continue to send our kids to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. We cannot continue to send our kids to Caesar and be surprised or shocked, appalled when they come home as Romans. If parents are going to outsource the education of their children, and I don't just mean in reading, writing, or arithmetic. Those are very particular parts of education. I mean in life. If we are going to outsource, if parents are going to outsource their their child's education to the school systems or to social groups or to media or to culture or whatever. If, if your child or your grandchild or your niece or your nephew, whoever, whatever children there is in your life, if they are getting their sense of morals and values and character from Disney, you've missed it. You're outsourcing your children. If that's what we're going to do as parents, and and not take a vigilant, determined, unrelenting approach to instructing our children in the Lord, what other result would we expect than where we are as a culture today? Somewhere along the line, Christian families have gotten this wrong. But it's not too late. It's not too late. See, even if the parents themselves are willing to flirt with and marry a lost and pagan culture in the world, and when I say marry, I don't mean specific union of of marriage. I mean just the, the giving yourself to If we're going to give ourselves to a lost and pagan culture of the world, why would we expect our children to turn out any different? Because children learn by example. If you're going to show in your own life that you don't take church all that seriously, why would you expect your children to act any different or to think any different? Your children are looking at you as a model And an example, God's word is clear. From the moment they're born, we should be doing what he instructs in Deuteronomy 6. To teach them diligently to your children. To instruct them and talk with them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Instruct your children in the word, lest they be lost. 
Apparently in Nehemiah's day, the issue of intermarriage was so bad, so prevalent, that it even touched, touches the high priest's household. Look there in 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. So this is clearly the high priest now. The Eliashib of before might be, might not be, we don't know. But clearly, Nehemiah is, is singling him out specifically here. He says, the son of the high priest, Eliashib, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the honorite. We've seen Sanballat before. He's one, of, he's one of Tobiah's associates, that little group of thugs. He says, the son in, uh, Je- Jehoiada, the son of the high priest, is the son-in-law of Sanballat. He's married into the family. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. The son of the high priest, the most holy and religiously upright example in the entire community, has a son who is married outside the camp. He has a son who is willfully intentionally married outside the camp in sin. And apparently he doesn't take too kindly to Nehemiah's actions here because he actually squares off with Nehemiah and Nehemiah chases him away. Again, friends, if you have kids or grandkids, nieces, nephews, neighborhood kids who ride their bikes in front of your house, any child that you have in your sphere of influence, I implore you, be vigilant and determined to instruct them in the Lord. And along the way, heed carefully the relationships that you have with the world, lest you sin yourself and drag your families down with you. The book ends with Nehemiah cleansing them from everything foreign. Verse 30, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each to his work, and I provided the wood offering at appointed times and the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for my good. He's cleaned and purified them from all that is unholy and damaging to the relationship they have with the Lord. The good news is, Jesus does the same thing for us. That in his sacrifice on the cross, his blood shed for us, which we will look to next week as we approach Palm Sunday, and then the week after that, Easter. It's a, it's a special part of the year where we think intentionally about the blood shed of Jesus Christ and what it means for us, the significance it has in our lives. He has cleansed us from our unrighteousness and our sin.